When Jessica Callis and Alan Bates married in their senior year of high school, they seemed too young and not quite ready for marriage. And they weren't. After four years and two kids, Alan left and then began a custody battle that would end in tragedy. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I want to get into tonight's case pretty quickly. I try to keep this announcement section short because this isn't church. But I was recently a guest on another podcast that I wanted to talk to you about because I was discussing the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. We talked about true crime in general. So if you want to go check it out, it's called Reboots, Remakes, and Revivals. And you can find it in your favorite podcast app. I had a great time hanging out over Zoom with Nicole, Rolando, and Eddie. It's a great show. It's smart. It's funny. I recommend you check it out. Also, don't forget my True Crime Headlines live stream on Thursday nights. The details will be in the show notes. I cover current cases. I answer questions. And I give you a chance to comment back your opinions on these new cases I'm covering. The old videos always stay up on Get Vocal and Facebook if you want to rewatch them. But if you want just the audio version of me covering the cases without all the comments and the questions and the live stream parts, you can get that on Patreon or Himalaya Plus. It is an added perk that I am giving this cleaned up audio version to my supporters there. And it's at any tier level. You don't have to donate five, ten dollars a month. Any amount and you get the audio only cleaned up version of the live streams. I do them three times a month and they cover cases that are currently grabbing headlines. So enough of that. Let's get into today's case. I'm going to apologize if you hear some congestion, some creakiness. I'm doing my best. This episode is late because I was sick last week with a cold. Having a cold when it's 100 degrees out is just such an icky feeling, but I'm feeling better and I'm sounding mostly better. So I thought, go ahead, let's get this recorded. For today's case, we need to roll back the clock to 1989 outside Birmingham, Alabama and the days of big hair. Except Jessica Callis did not have big hair. She was a bit of an outsider at high school. She was wearing all black. She was straightening her hair in the style that would soon become popular. But Jessica did have her own group of friends and she dated a lot. It's not like she was isolated or a total loner. Though when she would confide in her friends about her family life, what she described was a rough background. And rough might be an understatement. For the first seven or so years of her life, Jessica's parents, George and Diane, were together. But George was a paranoid and violent man who abused alcohol and other substances and his family. To give a glimpse into his mind a little, George wrote long letters to politicians about his premonitions of natural disasters 
as well as his own experience with a UFO that led him to believe UFOs were written about in the Bible. He maintained fanatical religious beliefs for the rest of his life. Diane eventually kicked him out, and Jessica did see her father for a while on visits. Visits, I doubted, were enjoyable for her. But George was eventually completely estranged from his family. He moved to Tennessee, and he remarried. Jessica's mother, Diane, remarried as well to a man named Albert Bailey. Albert was described by one of Jessica's friends as a very nice man, but it's hard to come in as the stepfather and also have to be the disciplinarian of a rebellious teenager like Jessica. Jessica pretty much did what she wanted, though it caused a lot of tension in the home. Jessica was very bright. She was specially selected for an honors program that had a more difficult and accelerated curriculum. But eventually, her rebellious do-what-I-want attitude cost her that. In the 10th grade, she was dropped from the program because she just wasn't doing the work. It was at this high school in Irondale, Alabama, that Jessica met Alan Bates. Alan was a really popular kid, having been elected student body president three years in a row. He was very much into theater, but not being on stage. He liked the -the behind-the-scenes stuff to the point that it became his career goal. Alan figured he could go to college for theater and then work his way up from smaller theaters to bigger ones and eventually end up working on Broadway. Jessica had a lot less direction in her life and a lot less focus. So when Alan and Jessica started dating the summer between 11th and 12th grade, their classmates were surprised. It didn't seem likely that the popular class president would even cross paths with the person who made fun of the popular kids. But here they were. It was the beginning of their 12th grade year when Jessica found out she was pregnant not even two months into her relationship with Alan. Alan had grown up in a conservative Christian church and decided the only thing to do was to get married, except Alan was still only 17. They ended up getting married in early 1990, just days after Alan turned 18. The couple moved in with Alan's parents so that Alan could focus on finishing high school. Jessica, however, dropped out with the plans of getting her GED later. It might seem unfair for a teen mother to have to drop out while the father gets to finish high school, and it is. About a month or so after the wedding, they welcomed their first daughter. Then Alan graduated high school and was accepted into college about an hour south of Birmingham. The couple packed up and took their daughter to a little fixer-upper house that Alan's parents helped them buy near the college. Jessica was a stay-at-home mom, and two years after their first daughter was born, they welcomed a second. In the meantime, Alan was working and going to school. 
Jessica struggled with the stay-at-home mom life at such a young age. She felt lonely and isolated and very likely depressed. And Alan was stressed trying to keep everything afloat. And let's be completely frank here. They barely knew each other. They were married and parents less than a year after they started dating. And they were teenagers. So not only did they barely know each other, they barely knew themselves. This would have been hard enough if there wasn't also a major issue with Jessica's jealousy. Alan spent his days in classes full of co-eds, and Jessica got it into her head repeatedly that he must be cheating on her. This drove a lot of arguments with the couple. Jessica's jealousy was not rooted in reality, and it also wasn't entirely new to the relationship in the university setting. Back when they were still in high school, Jessica pushed Alan into distancing himself from longtime female friendships. Being young and trying to be a good partner to this woman who's about to have his baby, Alan did cut off or at least reduce how often he saw these friends that Jessica was jealous of. Jealousy cannot be appeased this way, so of course it just continued into the early years of their marriage. It was in these early years, not long after the birth of their second daughter, that Jessica heard from her father again for the first time in years. Not so much from him, but more about him. George Callis had been arrested. George, who had been abusive throughout his marriage to Jessica's mother, Diane, called 911 on November 11th, 1992. He very calmly told the dispatcher that his wife, Olivia, was not breathing well and she was spitting up blood he had been beating her. That's what he said right to the dispatcher. He didn't try to hide his crime or the cause of her injuries. George was actually calling for help. When first responders arrived, they found Olivia on the floor with multiple severe injuries and barely clinging to life. She would not survive. I don't think there are even words to express how awful this was. On autopsy, they couldn't even tell which injury was the fatal one, since so many of them could have been lethal individually, let alone taken together. George was arrested immediately, and the day before his trial for first-degree murder, he pleaded out on second-degree. But the most interesting thing we see here pertaining to Jessica is his psychiatric evaluation. It's kind of a long story, and the full psychological picture didn't come out until there was an appeal later on, but a doctor looking at George's writings said it was textbook schizophrenic thinking. Coupled with George's behavior, he would be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. So Jessica was being raised during her formative years by a father with untreated schizophrenia 
and substance abuse issues. So it isn't surprising that this would have a huge impact on the person she became as an adult. We don't know how Jessica felt about her father ending up in prison for the rest of his life, but it wasn't long after this that Jessica decided she needed to improve her own life and create something outside of just being a parent. She finally got her GED, and she enrolled in the same college Alan was attending. Jessica started off by just taking one class. She was still balancing family life, and of course, Alan had a job. He had his course load. So one class seemed like what she could manage. But in early 1994, when she was 22 years old, Jessica started telling her friends that Alan was mean to her and mean to the kids. And that's when he was home, but he wasn't home that often. The picture she was painting of Alan was not something that aligned with what these friends knew about him, but they did just try to show sympathy and support to Jessica. Jessica started hanging out more with friends she made at school, and Alan was happy for her. She was in a better mood, and home life was going a lot more smoothly now that Jessica had a little bit of a life of her own. It seemed they could settle into a comfortably happy life together after all. That was until Jessica went away for the weekend. She told Alan that she wanted to go to Washington, D.C. so she could do research for a project for her history class. Most 101-level history classes don't require that level of field research, but Jessica was excited about it. She was excited about something, so Ellen and Jessica figured out a way to pay for her to go on this trip. Except Jessica didn't go on this trip alone like she pitched to Alan. She went with a male classmate. Since she had purposely lied to Alan about going to D.C. by herself, it was pretty clear that Jessica was having an affair. Alan confronted her about this and told her that it was over. He was moving out. In a book about the case called Death Trap by M. William Phelps, it's reported that Jessica grabbed a knife and tried to attack Alan as he was packing his things to leave. When he came back later to pick up what was left of his belongings, Jessica reportedly had destroyed everything and there was hardly anything worth salvaging. But I have not seen a second source for this particular incident, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is how it went down, or at least similarly, because Jessica would later be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. While I am not a fan of trying to diagnose someone because I read a couple articles about them, I think we can discuss this responsibly because Jessica has been diagnosed. Knowing that BPD is her diagnosis, we can see some of the symptoms in Jessica's behavior. People with BPD are often terrified of abandonment, so Alan being ready to walk out 
even if the behavior that led to the split was on Jessica's shoulders, it would have triggered this fear. The extreme emotional swings and explosive anger are also symptoms of BPD. So within this framework, really acting out when faced with someone leaving her makes sense. Jessica absolutely did not want the divorce at first, but Ellen told her he wasn't going to fight her on custody, and he started paying child support right away. The kids were little, and Alan was a bit old-fashioned in the sense that children belonged with their mother, so he was going to do what he could to make sure they stayed with Jessica and they were supported. He even gave her the house to stay in with the children. Alan filed for divorce in 1994, and it was granted in 1995. It was surprisingly amicable after that initial blow-up over Alan leaving. Even though Jessica was going to initially keep the house south of Birmingham, she did move back in with her mother and stepfather with the girls, so she would have more support. Alan also moved up to Birmingham after he graduated. He found a job as stage manager for the Alabama Theater which is a historic 1920s Birmingham landmark. While working at the theater, a group from Washington, D.C. came in to assess the building for restoration purposes in 1996. One of the architectural historians was 25-year-old Tara Clue. I love people like Tara because her B.A. was in art history but she had a minor in mathematics. She was smart in all directions. She was well-rounded, well-traveled, and her passion was preserving history. Not just studying it, but making it last. And it was preserving history that put her in the same place as Alan Bates, and the two hit it off. It was to the point that when it was time to go back to D.C., Tara instead stayed in Birmingham to see where things in the relationship would go. Eventually, Alan introduced Tara to his daughters, and even that went smoothly. Smoothly for everyone except Jessica. This was the turning point in the amicable divorce, and suddenly Jessica wasn't feeling so friendly. She resented Alan moving on, even though they split up two years before, and even though Jessica herself had moved on. In 1995, Jessica started dating a guy named Brad, who she met at a local comic book store. She moved in with him, leaving her kids with her mother. When Jessica and Brad split up, she was pregnant with his child. The pregnancy may have even been the cause of the breakup because Brad wasn't interested in having any children. 
After the baby was born, Brad expressed some interest in seeing her, but said Jessica made it difficult. She was also making it difficult for Alan to see his two girls, but Alan was a lot pushier. He grew more and more frustrated when he would show up to pick the kids up and they wouldn't be home. That was a favorite tactic of Jessica's, to simply not be home when Alan had a scheduled visit. Alan hired an attorney to start getting the courts involved after he was repeatedly denied his parenting time. Alan did not want custody. He still thought Jessica was a good mother and that the children needed her in their day-to-day lives. He just wanted the court to enforce the visitation schedule that Jessica had already agreed to. The pattern was to go to court, have the judge reprimand Jessica, and then she'd let Alan see the girls a couple of times before she started playing keep away again. Then they would end up back in court. In the meantime, while this is going on, Jessica got a job at the Birmingham Police Department in some sort of a secretarial role. While there, she met a police officer named Jeff McCord. Jeff had originally gone into youth services helping at-risk youth before becoming a police officer. He was introverted and He didn't really socialize with his co-workers, but he and Jessica started dating. Because of his quiet nature, some characterized their relationship as Jeff being steamrolled by Jessica. Whatever she pushed for is what they did because he just tried to avoid conflict. But Jessica's job with the Birmingham PD was not going to last. In 1999, she and Alan were doing a custody exchange with the girls, and they started arguing. Jessica physically assaulted Alan, causing him to fall, and in this fall, he broke his arm. The police were called, and Jessica was arrested for assault. She claimed it was self-defense, and she showed the police a few scratches on her body as proof, but it was determined that they were self-inflicted. Based on this incident and excessive absences from work, Jessica was terminated from her job at the police department. And Alan was getting more and more frustrated at the restricted visits. He and Tara were engaged to be married with a 1999 wedding planned, but Jessica refused to allow the girls to go with him for the weekend, so they postponed the date. He didn't want to get married without his daughters there. In June of that year, Alan filed a grievance with the court over Jessica not holding up the visitation schedule. Alan then got a job offer in Maryland. It was a stepping stone to his ultimate goal of working on Broadway, so he and Tara decided he would take it and they'd move up north. Alan was already not getting all of his weekend visits to see the girls, as promised, and the court had done little to help. So living in Birmingham didn't benefit him in seeing his girls more. But if Alan moved away and could get 
in order for longer visits, like summer breaks and over holidays, he might actually get more time with them overall. There would be fewer custody exchanges for Jessica to just not show up for. Jessica complained to Jeff how awful this would be for the girls. Alan had been abusive during their marriage, according to her, and even had put her in the hospital. There is no record of these hospitalizations, but I feel that it goes without saying at this point. Jessica had a new story, a different justification, a different lie, depending on her audience. But here's Jeff believing that Alan was a danger to the girls. And now they're expected to let him fly them out to another state for weeks at a time. Anything could happen to them while they were away. The court visitation schedule was changed, however, and Alan did get the girls for eight weeks over the summer of 2000. He and Tara picked the girls up in June and immediately got married at the Alabama theater where they met. They then took the girls home with them. Right before Alan got married, though, Jessica and Jeff also got married. According to Jeff, Jessica knew Alan and Tara were getting married soon, and she worried that Alan was going to look better to the judge having a two-parent family unit. So she wanted to get married, and Jeff just happened to be the guy she was dating at the time. Not exactly a romantic love story, but it is what it is. Alan returned the girls to Jessica at the end of his eight-week visit as planned. What Alan didn't know was this was the start of a long legal battle because Jessica intended on him never seeing his kids again, Jessica and Jeff moved, not giving Alan the address or her phone number. Alan's weekly court-ordered calls with the kids stopped entirely. He couldn't see his kids, he couldn't talk to them, and his lawyer was working very hard to figure out where they were. Jessica even removed them from school to homeschool just so the lawyer couldn't find them. At one court hearing, the judge asked Jessica's attorney about this homeschooling situation. Was she actually homeschooling them legally, or was this a ploy to keep the girls hidden? Because in Alabama, you can only homeschool if you are registered with a church school, a private school, or you hire a tutor. The attorney said, using information Jessica provided, that this was a legal homeschool situation and they were enrolled with a church program. Of course, they were not. Jessica had made that up. When her attorney found out that she set him up to lie to the court, he was understandably angry. He explained the situation to the judge, and between the lying and the denying visitation, the judge held Jessica in contempt. She would have to serve 10 days in jail, but he suspended the sentence for six months. If Jessica complied with the visitation order for six months, he would dismiss the charge and she wouldn't go to jail. 
Of course, Jessica did not comply. Not only that, she stopped showing up to court entirely. And when the six months ran out, when she should have ended up in jail, she didn't because she couldn't be found. Jessica and Jeff had moved again. This time, to be sure she didn't receive any mail from the court, Alan, or his lawyer, Jessica took down her mailbox. They could write to her all day, every day, and it would come back no mail receptacle. Jessica and Jeff instead got a P.O. box for their bills and just didn't give their mailing address out to anybody. Jessica did keep hiring a series of attorneys to go represent her, but then she wouldn't show up to the court date. The judge would issue a continuance, which was very frustrating for Alan, of course, because he wasn't getting to see his kids during all this time. Meanwhile, Jessica was telling people that Alan was the problem. She said she would have the girls ready to go and Alan would cancel at the last minute. Or Jessica would arrange for him to pick them up at her mom's house and then Alan would just not show. The court records and Alan's own documented logs show pretty clearly that this was a lie. He wasn't seeing the girls because Jessica was hiding them, and the court just kept giving her more chances. Alan and Tara, on their side of things, they discussed their options. Jessica was not going to follow the court order. Even the threat of jail did not change anything. Feeling like they had no other option to be a part of the girls' lives, Alan decided to file for full custody in November 2001, after over a year of not being allowed to see them. A month after this, the police caught up to Jessica in her new home with Jeff and executed the arrest warrant for that contempt charge. Jessica initially claimed she wasn't Jessica McCord. She was actually Jessica's sister. The police don't tend to fall for this kind of thing, so they called the station to have them send a photograph of Jessica over for comparison, and of course, it was her. She was taken into custody. By this point, Jessica also had another baby with Jeff. So the older two girls went to Alan, and then the younger two stayed with Jeff. Jessica claimed she was being sarcastic, and the police knew she was joking when she said she was her sister. But then why did she let them go so far that they called the station for a photograph of her? Just another example of Jessica having a justification for everything, even when it didn't make sense. Alan and Tara were happy to have time with the girls, particularly since this was over the holidays. But when Jessica got out, she got the girls back pending the outcome of the custody trial scheduled for March 2002. So other than the 10 days in jail, Jessica had not really lost anything, not even custody, by ignoring a court order for visitation. But that might not be the case for much longer. 
this full custody trial was coming up, and things didn't look great on Jessica's side. The only documented incident of violence between her and Alan was when Jessica was arrested for assaulting him. She lied to a judge, she had already burned through several lawyers, and she spent a year avoiding that 10 days in jail contempt charge. Jessica had been given so many chances to co-parent with Alan, or at least just not interfere with his parenting time, and she refused to give up even a portion of that control that she had. Alan, on the other hand, had a squeaky clean record that stands as a testament to a patient, non-custodial parent. He was never violent towards Jessica, but he also didn't run off when she made it hard to see the girls. He was persistent, but he presented to the court as calm and collected. Jessica did not want to be the one who saw the girls on school breaks. She didn't want Tara to fill that day-to-day mother role, even though Jessica had no problem letting her own mother, Diane, parent her children on and off when she was in between relationships, but she didn't want Tara to do it. Plus, Jessica had not worked in two years. She couldn't afford to lose the child support, and she certainly could not afford to pay it. Jessica was going to have to play nice going forward if she had any hope of retaining custody. So when Alan's lawyer asked if Alan could have the girls for the weekend of February 15th, 2002, Jessica unsurprisingly said yes. She could not afford to look like she was withholding reasonable visits. The reason Alan picked this weekend was because he was flying from Maryland to Birmingham to sit for his deposition related to the custody case. He and Tara figured that they could both fly out, rent a car, and then drive with the girls to Alan's parents' home in Marietta, Georgia for a family weekend. Alan wrapped up his deposition in the afternoon, and he and Tara grabbed something to eat downtown. They bumped into an old friend from the theater, and he could tell they were excited to go get the girls. They were scheduled to pick them up at 6 at Jessica and Jeff's house and then get on the road, assuming they would stop to eat dinner somewhere with the kids They should be there around 9.30-ish. It was around 10 p.m. that Alan's family started to wonder where they were. Alan was the kind of person who would check in if he was running late or stuck in traffic. The family called Alan and Tara's cell phones but got no answer on either. They waited a little bit, and then Alan's father, Philip, called Jessica's house. He wanted to know what time Alan and Tara left with the girls. But again, no answer. 
Philip eventually called the police in both Alabama and Georgia to see if there was a report of a car accident involving Tara and Allen. When that didn't yield any results, Philip called the police in Hoover, Alabama, which is where Jessica and Jeff lived. He told them that his son was supposed to have left Hoover at six and hadn't made it to Georgia yet. A patrolman went out to Jessica's house to do a welfare check of sorts, but no one was home. Hours later, in the early morning hours of February 16th, a farmer called 911 over a fire he saw in the woods outside Rutledge, Georgia. This would have been around 3.15 or 3.30 in the morning. The book I referenced before said the farmer was actually driving with some friends to a chicken show or some such thing when he saw the fire. I'm a city mouse, so the idea of getting up at 3 a.m. for a chicken show just didn't compute. And I was thinking this must be like a 4-H club, but no, a little more digging revealed that this chicken show was actually a cockfight. Anyway, the men and their chickens drove closer to where the fire was to see what was going on, and they could see it wasn't actually a forest fire, but rather there was a car that was on fire. When the police arrived around 3.50 in the morning, the fire department already had the flames under control. They all smelled something odd when standing near the back of the car, so they pried open the trunk to make sure all of the flames were out and see what was back there. And that's when they found two charred bodies that were unidentifiable. But they had a clue to the identities of these bodies pretty quickly because the fire had burned hot enough in the back of the car that the bolts for the license plate didn't hold. The plate had fallen to the ground, pretty much preventing it from being consumed in the fire. Investigators ran the plate number and learned the car had been rented at the Avis counter in the Birmingham airport, which was about three hours away. The name on the rental agreement was Alan Bates. At the scene, investigators didn't know if these were the remains of Alan and his wife, or were they someone else? Was Alan the victim or the perpetrator? They would need to track down Alan and Tara's movements that night and make contact with the families to get dental records for comparison. At the scene, they collected potential evidence, and the amount of junk that can be collected during the processing of a crime scene is significant because it's not always obvious what is connected to the case and what isn't. A cigarette butt could be your killer's and have his DNA on it, or it could have been tossed out the window 
by someone who drove by a couple hours before. So I'll spare you every piece of trash collected and focus on the two pieces that would become the most important. One was a partially burned paper towel found a short distance from the car. It had a print on it that was somewhat distinct. It wasn't just a plain white towel. And the second thing was a bullet that was found in the trunk. In spite of the victims having been shot four times each, the other bullets had gone through them. But this one had hit the victim's watch, which slowed it down enough that it did not exit the body. Later in the morning, Alan's father, Philip, was back on the phone. He had been calling all of these police departments asking about accidents, but he didn't know what car Alan was driving. He also knew he was likely going to have to file a missing persons report and the make and model of the car would be important. Philip knew Alan was going to be renting the car from the airport, so he just started calling the various companies with a kiosk at the Birmingham airport. And Philip called Avis first. The person typed in the information and the account was flagged. He got his manager on the phone and the manager told Philip he needed to call the GBI, which is exactly what Philip did. At some point that same morning, Jessica called the Bates home. She was returning the phone call they had placed the night before because they had left her a message, just basically saying they were looking for Alan. Joan, Alan's mom, told her that Alan and Tara had never made it to their house and asked if she knew where the kids were. Jessica said that the kids were at her mom's house because Alan never showed up to pick them up. It was, of course, a huge relief to find out that at least the children were safe. The GBI then showed up at the Bates family home to take their statements and to ask for the dental records. Before they even got around to asking for dental records and telling them why, the family was putting two and two together. The GBI does not show up because of a car accident or because an adult couple just didn't call their parents about a change in plans. But they patiently answered all the questions asked of them, waiting to find out what the GBI already knew. They told all about why Alan and Tara were in Birmingham and how they were supposed to pick up the girls from Jessica, but that Jessica said they never showed up. The GBI then told the family about the car, the fire, and the bodies, and they asked for the dental records. Dental records that would be matched to the couple during the autopsy. Since Jessica's house was where Alan and Tara were headed that day, the GBI knew that's where they needed to start, and they decided to talk to Jeff first. Jeff was a police officer, and he was due at work at 3 p.m. So since they knew where he was and that he would be away from Jessica, 
it would make it easier to get his independent statement. Jeff told the GBI that Alan never showed up to pick the girls up, so he and Jessica took them to their grandmother's house. He said they already had belated Valentine's Day plans they didn't want to cancel, and Diane was willing to babysit. They then asked Jeff what he and Tara did on this date, and he said they first went to see The Lord of the Rings, but left the theater and snuck into a different movie. Then they went out all night, they drove around, they went to a strip club, they watched the sunrise, and then stopped at Home Depot to pick up something they needed for a remodeling project they were doing on the house. When asked for verification of any part of this alibi, Jeff pulled out two ticket stubs for Lord of the Rings that he had in his wallet. The agents then went to Jessica and Jeff's house where they saw a note on the front door that said to go around back. Jessica wasn't home, but her stepfather, Albert Bailey, was. He told them that he was doing some remodeling work on the house and that Jessica had run to Home Depot. Except that's not where Jessica was, and the agents knew it. They had her under surveillance already, and they knew she was at her mother's house. So they went over there to talk to her, while another officer kept an eye on Albert at the house. When they got to Diane's house, Jessica insisted on talking to them outside. The agents suggested going back to her house to talk, and she said no. So standing in front of her mom's house, they told her that Alan and Tara were missing and asked her about the previous day. They did not immediately tell her that bodies had been found. Jessica gave a similar story as Jeff, but she did have a few differences. For one, Jeff said they waited at the house for Alan and then took the kids to her mom's, but Jessica said they actually took the kids to her mother's house at 5.30 because Alan was supposed to pick them up from there. She would never have allowed him at her house. At some point in the evening, Jessica said she called Alan and left him a cranky voicemail asking where he was and chastising him for flaking on the girls. When Alan didn't pick the kids up at her mom's house, Jessica talked to her mom on the phone, and Diane agreed to keep them so that she and Jeff could stay out on their date night. They went back to Diane's house around midnight to pick up the kids. Jessica said that her mom said to just leave them sleeping and come back for them in the morning. This midnight check on the kids was not in Jeff's story, and one of the detectives questioning Jessica saw Diane's face when Jessica said she went back to the house around midnight. She said Diane sort of rolled her eyes or looked sideways like this was the first time she was hearing this, and it made her immediately suspicious of this supposed alibi. So Jeff and Jessica had variations in their stories, and that does happen. No one has a perfect memory. 
But the thing here was that this was the next day. If I asked you what you did last night, right now, you could probably tell me with pretty good accuracy. It was a red flag to have the statements have the significant differences less than a day later. After hearing Jessica's version of the story, the agents then asked her if they could search her house, and she said no. She said Alan and Tara had never been there, so there was no reason for them to search it in connection with their disappearance. At this point, they told Jessica that Alan and Tara weren't just missing. Two bodies had been found in the trunk of the rental vehicle, and they believed the bodies were of the couple. Jessica then broke down crying, shocked at this totally brand new information. So while the agents are at Jessica's mother's house, the officer watching Jessica's house saw her stepfather leave the home in his van with what appeared to be a couch in the back. He drove around a bit, he went to a storage unit, and then he dumped the couch near a dumpster. When the police retrieved the couch, the cushions were missing and the fabric on the back had been cut out. Luminol tests did show a little bit of blood on an armrest, but it didn't belong to Alan or Tara. Of course, they asked Albert why he got rid of the couch, and he said Jessica had asked him to. The following day, Sunday, February 17th, around 1 p.m., the police had a search warrant in hand to search Jessica and Jeff McCord's house. When they entered the house, they found it to be very messy. There was clutter everywhere, making it difficult to search for any type of trace evidence. There could have been bullets under stuff for all they knew. The basement family room was in even worse shape since it appeared to be in the process of being remodeled, except the work being done was very sloppy. The wallpaper from the middle of the wall down looked new, and it was striped. But the stripes were not aligned, and the wallpaper wasn't even straight. The seams from the newer wallpaper on the bottom half and the older wallpaper on the top weren't even lined up. Someone obviously just pasted the wallpaper on the wall with no consideration for how it looked. This was a rush job. However, there wasn't really much of note found on the search. They did find patterned paper towels that matched the one at the crime scene, but it's not like these were custom paper towels. They were still mass-produced. It was just enough to tell them to stick with this line of investigation but it's not like they can arrest Jessica for buying patterned paper towels. After they wrapped up the search, they asked permission to speak to Alan and Jessica's two daughters, and Jessica agreed. They weren't there that night, so it didn't seem like they could offer much, except the officer asked the girls if they noticed anything different about the house when they got back from their grandmother's on Saturday, and one of them said she had. 
the carpet in the basement had been ripped up and new wallpaper had been hung. Jessica and Jeff mentioned they were remodeling the family room, but this indication that they had done it overnight while the girls were away, this is the exact time Jeff and Jessica said they weren't even home. And the authorities checked with the Home Depot Jeff and Jessica went to and learned that all they bought that day was a razor or a box cutter, something in that realm, something you would use to rip off the back of a couch or rip up carpet. Now the police are convinced that under the wallpaper and under the new tile may be hidden evidence, and they applied for a second search warrant. In the meantime, Jeff was questioned again after the first search, and he continued to deny he knew anything. He was placed on administrative leave until the situation could be reviewed or resolved. He and Jessica packed up the kids and left Alabama, heading to Florida to stay with Jessica's sister. While they were gone on Tuesday, February 19th, the second search warrant came through, and this gave the police what they needed. They were able to pull back that terrible wallpaper, and they found bullet holes in the drywall. Better yet, they found a bullet on the other side of the wall. Ballistics would match it to the bullet found in the trunk with Alan and Tara's bodies. They also saw something they missed the first time through the house, largely due to the clutter. On the leg of the coffee table in that family room was a small spot of blood. It was collected, sent to the lab, and it came back a match to Tara. This is what investigators needed. Arrest warrants for both Jessica and Jeff were issued with this new information. On Wednesday morning, Jeff did not show up to a hearing about his administrative leave, so he was immediately terminated. But then he and Jessica visited the Birmingham office of a well-known defense attorney who ended up not representing them likely because they couldn't afford him. But this showed they were no longer in Florida, but in the area. On Thursday, February 21st, the police were tipped off that Jeff and Jessica were hiding out at a friend's house. They were arrested. The children, however, were still in Florida, which is good. The last thing they needed at this point was to see their parents being arrested. Both Jeff and Jessica were charged with capital murder, and the state was seeking the death penalty in both cases. It was determined the two would be tried separately. Over the next year, while waiting on Jessica's trial, authorities were busy shoring up this case. They had those two big pieces of evidence, the bullet and Tara's blood in the house. There was no benign explanation for that. Jeff and Jessica both insisted Tara was never there. 
the state then built a circumstantial case based on a ton of inconsistencies in Jessica and Jeff McCord's stories. For one, when the kids went to Diane's house that night, not only did their stories not match each other, the police talked to the kid's babysitter, and she said she dropped the kids off at Diane's house. Jeff and Jessica didn't have them at all. Jeff and Jessica also couldn't decide where Alan was supposed to pick the kids up from, with Jeff saying the house, Jessica saying her mother's house. The police checked with the attorneys who set up the visit and confirmed pickup was at Jessica's house. The couple also said they were driving around that night doing a bunch of different things, but their cell phone records showed they had driven east towards Georgia that night. They also ran Alan's cell phone records and found that when Jessica called him to see where he was, his phone pinged on a cell tower within a mile of Jessica's house. And then there's this other part of Jessica's story where she called her mother, except it was from a payphone, in the middle of when they were supposedly in the movie. So Jessica said, well, she stepped out to go buy some antacids, and that's when she made the call. But the call was made two miles away from the theater. She would have had to pass multiple other stores to get to that one. And it was just on and on like this. No matter how smart Jessica was or thought she was, she left such huge inconsistencies and holes in her story that it is just hard to fathom that she thought she'd get away with this. Jessica also talked too much. A friend of hers called the police when she heard about the murders because Jessica had told her about this plan she had. She was going to goad Alan into a domestic violence incident when he picked up the girls because that would look better for her in court if Alan looked bad. Then she said that if Alan touched her, Jeff would kill him. At the time, she didn't take this as a threat on Alan's life, but when Alan was murdered, she definitely called the police to let them know about this. As this case was being built against her, Jessica was trying to get bond. She was pregnant with her fifth child, so she wrote to the judge asking if she and Jeff could be bonded out for the birth. That would also allow them time to bond with the baby. But here's where Jessica's prior behavior is going to come back on her. During the multi-year custody battle with Alan, Jessica showed that she was not going to follow a judge's instructions if she didn't want to. She lied in court, and she hid out to avoid arrest in that contempt case when the stakes were a lot lower than a death penalty murder case. Is this someone who has shown she can be trusted if bonded out? The judge certainly didn't think so. After Jessica gave birth to her daughter, the baby was placed with Diane, and Jessica was sent from the hospital back to lockup. There was also a third person police were looking at in regards to these deaths, and that was Albert Bailey. 
he was at the house basically cleaning up the scene. He disposed of the couch. He went to a storage unit that police believe was used to store evidence before it was then taken to the dump. The question was, what did Albert know? Was he just helping out because Jessica asked, or did he know he was cleaning up a murder scene? But then in June 2002, just four months after the murders, Albert died of a heart attack at 59 years old, so obviously they did not pursue this any further. Jessica's trial began and ended in February 2003, right at one year after the murders. And it was about as straightforward as a trial could go. It only lasted four days. The state had to give the jury a theory of what happened that day. So they said, Jessica put a sign on the front door saying that the door was broken and to come around the back. After Ellen and Tara arrived, Jessica had some pretense to convince them to come inside and sit down. While they sat there, someone shot them both dead, likely Jeff, who had firearms experience as a police officer. Jessica and Jeff then spent the rest of the night cleaning up the scene and disposing of the bodies. The motive here was rage and control. Jessica blamed Ellen for her 10 days in jail for contempt, and she was about to lose custody of her girls to him. Now, the most interesting thing that did happen at this trial was that Jessica took the stand. She didn't do great, I'm not going to lie. The jury really does not want to hear the accused get up there and bash the victim. Even if everything Jessica said was true, which it was not, but let's pretend it was, Jessica didn't show any sympathy for Alan or Tara's deaths. She complained how Alan wasn't even that interested in the kids and how he traveled with these theater shows barely showing up for visits. She said she would get the kids ready and then he wouldn't show up, breaking their hearts. She explained that they had to get rid of the carpet and the couch because it was damaged from their dog. Initially, they were going to reupholster the couch, not throw it away, so that's why the fabric was cut out. But then they realized it would not be worth the time or expense, so Jessica asked Albert to haul it off for her. Jessica then went on to say that she did show up for all those court dates. Alan's attorney just didn't see her, but she was there. And this is just ridiculous because there's a court record available. Is she trying to say that the judge and her own attorneys also didn't see her? As for a bullet hole in the wall, Jeff had accidentally fired his gun one day in the house. Jessica had an answer for everything, and she said she did not see Alan and Tara after the deposition and denied involvement in their murders. The cross-examination by the state was basically just calling Jessica out on all the lies. Diane Bailey took the stand in Jessica's defense. She alibied Jessica for that midnight stopping in because that would have been time Jessica and Jeff would have had to have been 
going to Georgia to burn the car. Diane backed up the story that Jessica told about how they went there at midnight. I'm interested to know why the defense did not throw Jeff under the bus. Claim that Jessica showed up at midnight at Diane's house, but Jeff wasn't there. Maybe it would have opened too many doors or other inconsistencies, but I would say I think they would have had a better chance at reasonable doubt if they made it sound like Jeff did this without Jessica's prior knowledge. And she was just guilty of helping cover it up. But that is not what they argued. They just argued that the state's case was not strong enough. But the jury thought it was, and 31-year-old Jessica was found guilty after about two and a half hours of deliberation. Then, in a 7-5 to vote, they recommended the sentence to be life without parole rather than the death penalty. The judge was not bound by the jury's recommendation on sentencing, and he was meant to sentence Jessica in April after Jeff's trial. But Jeff saw how things went for his wife with the same evidence they had against him, and he was ready to cut a deal. He would tell the police exactly what happened that day and testify in any future court proceedings related to the case in exchange for a life with parole sentence. When Jeff told the story, he just confirmed that the theory of the crime presented in the trial was pretty much spot on. Jeff said that Jessica would bring up wishing Alan was dead and saying how they could kill him. Jeff would blow her off until she came up with a plan to do it when Alan came to pick up the girls on February 15th. Instead of dissuading her, Jeff agreed to help, claiming that he was convinced by Jessica that Alan was abusive and controlling. They agreed that if Tara came with Alan, she would have to be killed as well. As Jeff rather coldly put it, she was the victim of circumstance. Tara was actually the victim of Jeff and Jessica McCord. Anyway, Jeff said they used the sign on the front door to get them to go to the back, which led to the downstairs family room. Jessica told them that the girls were ready to go, but they had wanted to first perform a little skit or a puppet show that they had prepared. She went upstairs to get the girls. So Alan and Tara sat on the couch while making small talk with Jeff. Then Jessica came back down the stairs and sat on the steps. That was Jeff's cue. He pulled out his gun from behind his back and shot Tara first. Alan stood up in shock and Jeff turned and fired at Alan. Once Alan was on the ground, he shot Tara again to be sure she was dead. Jessica then backed Alan's rental car up the driveway to get closer to the back door. Wrapping the bodies in blankets, they carried them to the trunk. Jeff then collected the bullets, except he thought he fired six shots for some reason, so when he recovered the six bullets, he assumed he had gotten them all. 
he didn't realize he had actually fired eight, leaving the one in the house and the one in Alan's body, which would link him to the killings. He and Jessica then drove in tandem with Jeff in the rental car and Jessica in the minivan. They first set up their alibi by buying the movie tickets and having Jessica use the payphone. On the way to Georgia, Jeff dismantled and scattered the pieces of the gun along the highway. At 2 a.m., they doused the car in gasoline, but they had trouble getting it to catch fire, so they lit the paper towels on fire and threw those in. One of these towels must have blown clear of the fire, leaving that little breadcrumb for investigators. When Jeff and Jessica got back home and saw how much blood evidence and bullet holes were in the house, Jessica recommended they torch the home to destroy it. But Jeff knew that would look way, way too suspicious for Alan and Tara to have a car fire the same night Jeff and Jessica had a house fire. So they decided to clean and cover up whatever they could. But Jeff told investigators that they actually thought they would have more time. They didn't expect the car to be found so quickly and to be traced back to Allen immediately. When they found out on Saturday morning that Allen's family had already reported the couple missing and were already working with GBI, they knew they needed to act fast, which just led to more sloppiness. In accordance with the plea deal, Jeff was given life with the possibility of parole. Jessica was given life without parole. The two soon divorced, and Jessica legally changed her name back to Jessica Bates, keeping Alan's last name, which I wish there was some way to have legally prevented that. The state decided to then charge Diane Bailey, Jessica's mother, for perjury for providing a false alibi for Jessica. I do not want to sound like I am justifying this, but I can see the temptation here. As a mother, this was a death penalty trial. She was trying to save Jessica's life. It was wrong to perjure herself, but I do understand why she did it. Diane did plead not guilty and testified that it wasn't intentional, she was just confused or she misremembered. At the time of the murders, through the time of the trial, Diane had a lot going on. She was caring for her elderly parents, with her father dying around six weeks after Jessica's arrest. Then her husband died a few months after that. Then Jessica's newborn came to live with her with the other children. So she is 58 years old. She's working. She's taking care of Jessica's children and her own mother. And on top of that, grieving her husband and her father. She said that this stress led to her testimony being unintentionally not true. But Diane was found guilty of perjury in this trial and given an eight-year sentence. But 
It was one year of work release and seven years suspended, which I think is fair because she was raising and supporting two of Jessica's children who she would raise until her own death in 2017. And that is an added layer of tragedy here. Jessica's five kids were split up. Alan's family took custody of the two oldest, even though Jessica was now saying that the oldest one wasn't Alan's biological child. The Bates family did not care about that because even if it was true, she was Alan's daughter. End of story. Jessica's attorney said after the verdict that they intended on appealing, but if they did, it wasn't successful. She remains housed at the Tutwiler Prison for Women. In June 2017, Jeff McCord had his first parole hearing. In Alabama, parole eligibility happens no later than 15 years on a serious charge like murder. And the countdown starts when you are first arrested, not when you were convicted or sentenced. So 2017 was 15 years. At this hearing, Alan's brothers and one of Tara's closest friends spoke against granting parole after such a short amount of time. 15 years for two premeditated murders was not nearly long enough for the families. Jessica will be spending the rest of her life in prison for the same crimes, and she's not even the one who pulled the trigger. Jeff's family came to show support and to indicate that he would have continued support going forward and family connections should he be released. His request was denied, but he can apply again in 2022. And I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Alan and Tara's loved ones will be there to remind the parole board of what exactly Jeff and Jessica took from the world, all because they didn't want Alan to see his children. (laughs) 